Kia ora tato. I'm delighted to um, welcome everyone here today and to introduce today's speaker, uh, Nig Nigel Robson. Now, as many of, many of you here will know, uh, Manatu Taonga and its predecessors and also the National Library with our other partners have had a, 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 a made a really major contribution over many years to preserving and sharing the, the stories of New, Zealand, New Zealand's involvement in, in overseas wars and um, with a particular focus, perhaps not surprisingly, on the First and Second World Wars, but also including some significant projects on the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. But it is fair to say that the South African War um, has not always received, received the, same, the same attention, so it's very timely that Nigel has produced this history and is also speaking to us today about dissenting voices in the South African War. And Nigel is a senior historian at Te Arafiti, Office of Māori Crown Relations, and he has contributed to journals and, and um, conference uh, presentations on aspects of the South African War. So his, um, his recently published book, Our First Foreign, Year, A Foreign War, is his first book, and um, please join me in welcoming Nigel. Thank you. The South African War, also known as the Second Anglo-Boer War, and perhaps more commonly the Boer War, occurred between October 1899 and May 1902. The conflict pitted the numerically stronger forces of the British Army and its colonial supporters against the Boers of the South African Republic and the Orange Free State. For New Zealand, the war was especially significant as it was the first foreign war to which the nation contributed a national military force. After initially sending the first contingent in 1899, New Zealand sent a further nine contingents, though only the first eight saw active service. The last two arrived um, after peace was declared. Uh, when war broke out in 1899, New Zealand's participation in the conflict received huge public support. And for the duration of the war, public displays of patriotism remained the most visible elements of New Zealand's response. Early in the war, Boer, force, Boer forces besieged the three towns of Kimberley, Ladysmith and Mayfair King, near the borders of the two Boer republics. Following the relief of Mayfair King by British forces after a 217-day siege, an estimated 30 to 40,000 people celebrated in Dunedin. Although the scale varied, similar rapturous scenes played out across New Zealand from the largest cities to the smallest rural towns. In this emotionally charged environment, the loyalty of the minority who publicly opposed the war was questioned, with most labelled pro-Boers. Their reasons varied. There was moral and religious opposition to the war, political opposition, support for pacifism, and opposition to militarism. Dissenters risked vilification or even violence if their views were made public. During the Mayfair King celebrations, people gathered menacingly outside the premises of a Dunedin businessman suspected of harbouring pro-Boer views. In Whanganui, a man who agreed with German criticism of the war was reportedly hammered, while a passenger aboard a vessel in Littleton who made disparaging comments about the British following the relief of Ladysmith was assaulted and unceremoniously hoisted onto the wharf using the ship's crane. Setting a precedent for First World War concerns about saboteurs infiltrating New Zealand ports, an Auckland resident wrote to the Prime Minister in 1901 recommending guards be placed on contingent vessels. W. Morton claimed, well-paid spies, agents and traitors were operating in Australasia and advised the government to prevent pro-Boers getting aboard troop ships and firing, scuttling, disabling their engines or sinking them. 
Among the first to publicly express dissent was the elderly Legislative Council member Henry Scotland. In early October 1899, 54 parliamentarians in the House of Representatives supported Richard Seddon's resolution offering a first contingent for service in South Africa. Only five members voted against the resolution. In the Legislative Council, Scotland alone opposed sending troops. He was accused of senility after suggesting larrikins and loafers would seek a trip to South Africa at the taxpayer's expense. When the resolution was passed and councillors rose to sing the national anthem, Scotland incensed his fellow members by remaining seated. In June 1900, Scotland described the South African war as a wicked, unnecessary and cruel war. He claimed the conflict was driven by capitalism and jingoism and expressed concern about the wave of militarism washing over New Zealand. It is painful to see people are persecuted and their loyalty questioned because they express condemnation of this war. Labelled a pro-Boer and a traitor in the press, Scotland continued to oppose the war and New Zealand's involvement in it. Imperialism is in the air. Sir, I hate the very word imperialism and the very name of empire. Gilbert Carson spoke in opposition to Seddon's resolution during the first contingent debate, but chose to leave the House rather than to vote against it. Concerned by the impact of his actions, Carson attempted to explain his position during a speech shortly before the 1899 general election. He said he had initially considered it unnecessary to send a contingent, but once the decision was made, he shared his fellow parliamentarians' desire to dispatch the men. Many Whanganui voters remained unconvinced, and Carson's stance contributed to his single-term parliamentary career ending in the election. The Evening Post claimed that Carson and his fellow politicians James Kelly Thomas and Thomas Taylor owed their election defeats to their opposition to Seddon's resolution. Rutherford Waddell, the editor of the Outlook Presbyterian Weekly, was an equally outspoken critic of the war. In early October 1899, Waddell asked what was drawing New Zealand into the conflict and what was to be gained from it. He claimed Cecil Rhodes' British South Africa Company was driven by insatiable greed and a thirst for power and accused Joseph Chamberlain, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, of jockeying the nation into an unnecessary war. The flame of patriotism has burst forth and is burning up everything else. Despite his views, Waddell was an objective editor and published letters criticising his views and accusing him of slandering Rhodes and Chamberlain. One said it was outrageous for Waddell to suggest Britain was pursuing the war for financial gain, and that unless Waddell changed his position, the veiled threats directed at him would become real. Commenting on the public's fixation with the conflict, Waddell assured his readership that he was not complaining. It's a right and proper thing. He also claimed the war roused the manhood of the nation, increased patriotism, and showcased imperial unity. Although there was concern within the Presbyterian Synod about Waddell's stance, he did receive some support from fellow Presbyterians who considered his critics were challenging freedom of speech. While Reverend Davidson claimed many were outraged by Waddell's stance, Reverend Hewitson proposed an amendment commending Waddell on his independence of opinion and, willing to and willingness sorry, to publish views that ran counter to his own. Waddell was not the only religious figure to question the reasons for the war. Reverend Bates, an Anglican, said 
said war would not have broken out had it not been for the Transvaal gold mines. Reverend James Gibb, the Presbyterian minister of Dunedin's first church, said that his support for the war was constrained by his uncertainty regarding its origins. Gibb identified protecting national rights and alleviating the suffering of the downtrodden as legitimate incentives for war, but doubted whether either existed in the South African situation. Though initially critical of the martial fervour engulfing New Zealand, Gibb had an apparent change of heart, later claiming Britain had no choice in 1899 other than to draw the sword and fling the scabbard afar. Even Waddell acknowledged the need for victory once fighting began. Few individuals fueled more controversy during the war than Chief Hansard reporter James Grattan Gray. As well as his role at Hansard, Gray worked as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. Shortly after war broke out, Gray wrote a New York Times article criticising New Zealand's response to the conflict. Gray claimed New Zealand had become infected with imperialism of the most pronounced type. In the article, titled Jingoism in Australasia, a wave of imperialism sweeps the colonies, Gray claimed that other countries would think it odd that self-governing colonies thousands of miles from South Africa would send men to fight people with whom they had no quarrel and assist in their subjugation. Like Waddell, Gray claimed, the jingoistic spirit at the Antipodes is too inflamed just now to care anything about the rights and wrongs of the question. After extracts from the New York Times article appeared in Dunedin's Evening Star, Seddon wrote to Gray asking if he was the author. Refusing to be intimidated, in February 1900, Gray readily admitted to writing the article. He told Seddon he'd been a lifelong supporter of the Party of Peace and asked, does anybody in his proper senses, anyone with the smallest atom of intelligence or fair-mindedness, really believe that but for the gold and diamond discoveries in South Africa, the Boers would ever have been disturbed in their isolation? Gray also argued that New Zealand's expenditure on sending troops to South Africa would be better spent on improving the nation's defences. He indicated he had no intention of recanting and regretted the wave of jingoistic hysteria in New Zealand. Irked by Gray's intransigence, Seddon referred the matter to the Parliamentary Reporting, Debates and Printing Committee, which recommended Gray be dismissed for flouting an earlier committee recommendation that Hansard's staff abstain from involvement in politics. Following one of the longest parliamentary debates of the war, Gray's fate was sealed and he was dismissed from his Hansard position. The New York Times presented Gray as a champion of free thought and speech and claimed he'd been threatened with physical violence. It claimed New Zealand was the most jingoistic of the Antipodean colonies, possessing a level of intolerance that was barely conceivable in a democratic country. In September 1900, Gray and his wife left New Zealand and sailed for the United States. But even on the voyage to San Francisco, controversy dogged the couple, with Gray's wife being ostracised by her fellow passengers for refusing to sing God Save the Queen. In May 1900, during the National Council of Women's Dunedin Conference, several politically active New Zealand women came to the forefront of the public debate surrounding the conflict. Although the war was a divisive issue within the NCW, the conference provided a forum for the expression of anti-war sentiments. Delivering a paper on peace and arbitration, Wilhelmina Bain was openly critical of Britain's role in the conflict. In response, 
Prominent suffragette and NCW president Kate Shepard expressed disappointment. Shepard was not scared of public opinion, but had advised delegates to avoid specific references to the war. Despite being accused of being a pro-Boer by the Evening Star, Bain remained unapologetic. She said she stood for the interest of humanity and was as much pro-British as pro-Boer. Bain claimed the rise in militarism was intended to transform men into automatic killing machines and accused New Zealand of sending young men to Africa to kill boys as young as 16 and men as old as 70. Although Bain could not have known it at the time, this was the exact age range of New Zealand soldiers uh, in the contingents. Alan Saunders was 16 when he enlisted in the 6th contingent, and Dr Robert Bakewell, who had served alongside Florence Nightingale at Scutari during the Crimean War, was 70 when he enlisted in the 9th. Although its members were dismissed in the press as pro-war cranks, combating militarism was also a key objective of the Auckland Peace Association. The freelance newspaper dismissed members of the Wellington Peace and Humanity Society as Wellington Peace and Humanity Stop the War sort of patriot, claiming they were characterised by the following rhyme. We don't want to fight, but by jingo if we do, we won't go to the front ourselves, but we'll send the mild Hindu. Bain's motion supporting arbitration and, reject and rejecting militarism was seconded by Marianne Tasker, whose son Charles served in the Sixth Contingent. In an apparent contradiction, Marianne was later involved in organising the Eighth Contingent send-off in Wellington and had reportedly spoken in support of New Zealand sending troops to South Africa. Bain also received support from other like-minded New Zealand women. Temperance worker and suffragette Annie Schneckenberg opposed the involvement of Australasian colonies in armed conflicts and accused the British authorities of viewing the colonies as a recruiting ground for imperial militarism. Margaret Sivright of the Gisborne Women's Political Association applauded Bain's speech and, like Gray, saw the war as the result of capitalist machinations. She contrasted the British response in South Africa with the inertia of Christian European nations when Armenians were slaughtered in 1896. The difference, she claimed, was that the South African dispute involved territory, gold and diamonds. But not everybody in the Gisborne Association supported Bain's stance. Agnes Scott claimed Sivright did not speak for the association and stressed it remained loyal to Queen, Flag and Country. A banner carried in Dunedin during the May for King celebrations depicted a member of the National Council of Women embracing a Boer, and the following day, the council was accused of being Boeresses in disguise. In 1901, Marianne Tasker's son was court-martialed for sleeping at his post in South Africa. After being sentenced to five years imprisonment, Tasker was transported to Gosport Prison in the UK. Clearly angered by the move, Marianne accused the imperial authorities of exceeding their jurisdiction by imprisoning a native-born New Zealander in the United Kingdom. New Zealand, she noted, was a self-governing colony that had offered troops for a specific purpose in a specific place. She also criticised the Dark Ages treatment her son received on the voyage to England, where he was confined below the waterline in an airless hold during the 15 days it took to pass through the tropics. The Tasker's plight struck a chord with New Zealand parents concerned about the military's treatment of their own sons serving in South Africa. A correspondent to Wellington's Evening Post 
spoke for many when she wrote, we colonial mothers did not give our sons body and soul to the imperial army to do with as they like. Our boys may be brave and fearless as lions, but in the tigerish grip of the imperial army, it shall avail them nothing in the day of trouble. One New Zealand woman who, despite her courage and tenacity, seems to have been largely overlooked in New Zealand's historical narrative is Takapuna resident Charlotte Berwick. At a time when fundraising within New Zealand was almost entirely focused on supporting the country's war effort, Berwick instead raised money for sick and wounded Boers. Refusing to be cowed by public opinion, Berwick advertised in newspapers seeking contributions. In a letter published in the press, Berwick applauded other like-minded individuals who took a right view of these much-abused Dutch farmers. In an indication of the attitudes Berwick faced, one of her advertisements appeared in the same column as another advertisement claiming that Britain would wipe out the Boers like flora soap wiped out dirt. Berwick's activities attracted the interest of Australian newspapers, with the Western Australian Sunday Times facetiously observing that it was only reasonable to collect money for the Boers as they would be ones, the ones in most need of assistance. Although it is unclear whether Berwick obtained the approval of, a, of her contributors, she regularly published their names in the press. Possibly as a sign of Irish and German sympathies for the Boers, contributors' names included Boyle, Geraghty, Turley, Maguire, McGowan, Mosier and Winkleman. Berwick collected a total of £21 for the Boers, though how she forwarded this to the Boer recipients is unknown. Shortly before Grattan Gray and his wife left New Zealand, Berwick was among 80 supporters at a function in their honour and made the purse filled with gold sovereigns that was presented to the couple. She then appears to have disappeared from the press columns, but moved from Takapuna to Russell after the war, where she died in 1909. One of the more amusing, exa one of the more amusing examples of dissent occurred in 1901 and involved soldiers of New Zealand's 7th contingent and Wilhelm Jensen, a Danish upper hut storekeeper. Jensen, a justice of the peace, unashamedly described himself as a well-known Boer supporter. When he blamed Chamberlain for the war during an upper hut public meeting, the crowd broke into, for he's a jolly good fellow. When he claimed the British intended to seize Transvaal, they sang Rule Britannia. And when he claimed the war was against fair play, humanity and Christianity, he was finally drowned out by a loud chorus of soldiers of the Queen. On a Sunday in March 1901, members of the 7th contingent returning to their Trentham camp gathered at Jensen's business and tore down the Danish flag he flew over the premises. The soldiers had been encouraged by local residents who accused Jensen of being a pro-Boer and flying a Boer flag. After Jensen complained to the, to the Danish consul, it became an international incident of sorts, with the consul requesting an immediate investigation be made into this affront to the Danish flag. The incident was finally resolved when Jensen received an apology from the contingent's commanding officer, and the government formally apologised to the consul general, uh, sorry, to the Danish consul. Seddon dryly observed that similar unpleasant occurrences could be avoided if the men received a lesson in national flags. While the combined press coverage provided Jensen with a platform for his views, this was not always the case for Boer sympathisers. 
In other regions, newspapers were apparently reluctant to publish material seen as supporting the Boer enemy. Waverley resident D. Fleming asserted that the, Collegi- sorry, the Wanganui Chronicle had refused to publish letters he had written during the war. A self-confessed pro-Boer and outspoken critic of British actions in South Africa, Fleming claimed to have spent five years living among the Boers before the war. He had found them to be reasonable, more trustworthy than Europeans, and dedicated to maintaining their independence. Within weeks of the war's outbreak, the Whanganui newspaper dedicated an entire editorial to discrediting Fleming's views. In the final months of the war, the Presbyterian outlook was once again in the news. While acting as the outlook's temporary editor, Seddon's implacable political foe, William Hutchison, expressed regret that the wasteful war of extermination was still going on. Hutchison was especially critical of the deaths of Boer children in the British concentration camps, which he described as a dark page in the history of the conflict. Like Waddell, Hutchison attracted vociferous criticism, with the star calling the outlook a pro-Boer newspaper. It claimed that following Hutchison's editorial, the Matari Presbytery had passed a resolution drawing the attention of the Outlook's publishing committee to Hutchison's disloyal and anti-British sentiments. In an article titled A Pro-Boer Editor, the Star announced Hutchison's resignation, claiming the publishing committee believed his opinions were antagonistic to Presbyterians and other churches. Predating First World War suspicions about unions, the loyalty of some unionists in New Zealand was questioned during the South African War. In 1900, Wellington resident John Williamson wrote to Lieutenant Colonel Penton claiming that Danish contingent member Julius Pedersen had gone to South Africa for the purpose of joining the Boers or acting as a spy. In a confidential response to a query from Penton, Pedersen's employer, Harrison Brothers of Kaitoki, accused him of being a very deep union fellow and an out-and-out rank socialist. The company warned that if Pedersen really sympathised with the Boers, he would undoubtedly require watching very closely. Labour groups certainly had the potential to disrupt troop movements and trade with South Africa, but within the labour movement, the war proved divisive. While some workers questioned the conflict's legitimacy, there was no concerted attempt to disrupt maritime traffic to and from South Africa. Port workers' employment largely relied on uninterrupted trade with Britain and, to a lesser extent, the other colonies of the British Empire. Once hostilities commenced and trade volumes to Natal and Cape Colony soared, there was little evidence of unions favouring disruptive industrial action. During the first years of the conflict, widespread union support for British actions in South Africa ensured the New Zealand labour movement played a leading role in the country's response. Even when individual unions became critical of the war, this criticism was undermined by equally strident expressions of union support. In October 1899, trade unionists took part in patriotic displays at Wellington's Labor Day parade, when Seddon apologised to workers carrying out alterations to the Waiwera, the first contingent's vessel. The Premier noted that, like contingent members, the tradesmen were doing their duty. In the South, management and labour divisions were temporarily set aside when the President of the Trades and Labour Council mingled with politicians and the President of the Chamber of Commerce at a Dunedin patriotic fundraiser.
Support for the contingents also came from at least one women's labour organisation, with the Tayloresses Union making equipment for the third contingent, which together with the fourth contingent were known as the Rough Riders. The Dunedin branch of the Union also contributed £25 to purchase a contingent horse. Yet although Unions were largely supportive of British actions in South Africa, as the war progressed, some began to question the conflict and New Zealand's involvement in it. In some cases, workers who voiced opposition to the war risked coming into conflict not only with their employers, but also with their workmates. In 1900, a bluff watersider was reportedly instructed to leave the docks by his co-workers after voicing support for the Boers. In Napier, the principle of free speech was, was sidelined altogether by a 1900 Borough Council resolution intended to gag council employees who criticised British actions in South Africa. Passed unanimously, the resolution appeared in the local newspaper under the ominous title, A Warning. It instructed overseers to inform council workers that making remarks derogatory to the British government in connection to the war in South Africa would result in instant dismissal. Similar threats did not pass unchallenged. A Christchurch editorial titled, Should Englishmen Be Muzzled?, supported the right of those with pro-war sentiments to express their views regardless of whether they ran counter to public opinion. While stressing that his newspaper was not pro-war, the editor claimed that freedom of speech was under attack. Following claims that several Westport Harbour Board employees had expressed disloyal sentiments, the Harbour Board passed its own resolution instructing its, engineers, sorry, its engineer to instantly dismiss Boer sympathisers. The Manawatu Evening Standard, a frequent Seddon critic, claimed that the, the resolution was the worst kind of autocracy and criticised the three Seddonite politicians it claimed were on the board and behind the resolution. Though teachers remained largely supportive of the war, they too could find their jobs in jeopardy if suspected of disloyalty. In 1901, the New Zealand Ensign Act formalised the use of the Royal Navy Reserve Blue Ensign with the addition of the Southern Cross as the nation's official flag. Under the Act, anyone found to have defaced a flag was liable to a penalty not exceeding £5. However, as Kitty School headmaster James Murray discovered, failure to comply with Education Board directives concerning the flag could prove far more costly. Members of the Kitty School Committee accused Murray of refusing to declare a holiday following the occupation of Pretoria by British forces. While conceding this was true, Murray believed he lacked the authority to send his students home. He stated that he had been willing to give them a holiday the following day on receipt of a written instruction from the school committee, but claimed this had not been forthcoming. While Murray's initial refusal was anathema to the area's loyal and patriotic committee, it was his refusal to salute the flag that set the headmaster on a collision course with the education board. Matters came to a head when the board delivered an ultimatum. Murray was to salute the flag and instruct his students to do the same or tender his resignation. After declining both options, Murray was summarily fired from his £175 per annum position. A petition signed by 64 residents of the Kirikiri district, including two school committee members, urged the board to reconsider. They believe Murray's unwillingness to salute the flag was driven by conscience rather than disloyalty and called for his reinstatement. 
One petitioner noted that honouring the flag was neither an obligation under the Education Act nor part of the school curriculum. He believed Murray was fired not for refusing to salute the flag, but because of suspicions he was either Fenian or a pro-Boer. Murray's case was also taken up by the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Women's Political League, who considered his punishment unduly harsh. The headmaster's refusal seems to, to, sorry, seems to have stemmed from his personal and possibly religious aversion to saluting an object, which he suggested could be akin to adultery. Sorry, to idolatry. <laughs> possibly both, I don't know. In a letter to the Education Board, Murray rhetorically asked, is it not degrading to the freeborn children of this colony to try and compel them to act to, to an act of the most servile homage, which is never acquired of English, Scotch, or Irish children, and such as would such as would scarcely be expected from the pagan barbarian slaves of a cent Central African chief? Could anything be more could anything be devised more utterly foolish than to salute an inanimate, useless piece of drapery in the same manner as an intelligent human being? In Waihi, Salvation Army members came under attack during the May for King celebrations when their captain, acting under orders, refused to hoist the Union Jack at the local barracks. When he attempted to address the angry crowd, he was pelted with eggs and drowned out with derisive hoots. In a letter to the Auckland Star, Minor claimed that respectable citizens had reacted to an insult to the flag and it was not the captain's refusal to hoist it that had enraged the Waihi crowd, but the Salvation Army's subsequent lowering of the Union Jack raised by those who had forced their way into the barracks. Minor also referred to traitors in South Africa and claimed there were equally treacherous individuals in New Zealand. Though stopping short of accusing the Salvation Army of treason, the inference was clear. By late 1901, some unionists had become disgruntled by war-related government spending at a time when government employees reportedly faced redundancies. The disaffected unions moved a strongly worded resolution opposing the dispatch of the 8th contingent to assist in waging against the Boers a hideous and unholy war of extermination which we believe was begun and now carried on entirely in the interests of capitalism. The operative Sausage Case and Skin Makers Union expressed its pleasure at the resolution, while Wellington unionist T. Lynch claimed that the conflict was not in the interest of workers. But when the resolution was passed, Trades Council President William Norton resigned in disgust, claiming it did not reflect Labour Party views or those of most unionists. The plumbers, bookbinders, butchers and saddlers unions backed his views. The bakers union and the timber yard workers union stated that their continued Trades Council affiliation depended on it rescinding the resolution with the United, Furniture, uh, sorry, the United Furniture Trades Union describing it as an ill-timed and viciously worded resolution. A delegate accused the Carpenters Union of being behind the resolution. He claimed it had been passed during a poorly attended meeting. Bowing to pressure, the Trades Council rescinded the resolution shortly after its passage. Instead, the Wellington Topographical Union carried its own resolution that this union has no sympathy with any disloyal sentiments in connection with the Boer War. After Dunedin politician Alfred Barclay condemned the British use of concentration camps to confine Boer women and children, 
The Workers' Political Committee rejected press accusations that Barclay was a Boer, uh, Boer sympathiser. An outspoken, uh, sorry, the outspoken politician who in 1899 had published a pamphlet on the theories of Karl Marx had been repeatedly criticised in the press after allegedly making pro-Boer remarks in a speech. Barclay was advised to resign his parliamentary seat by a worker. Employees at Dunedin's railway workshops unanimously decided not to invite him to their annual picnic, considering his presence undesirable because of his allegedly pro-Boer views. Barclay claimed in Parliament that his four-year-old son had been ostracised by classmates who told the boy his father was a pro-Boer who ought to be shot, and Barclay was later confronted by Union Jack-waving railway employees who passed a resolution denouncing his traitorous utterances. When in 1902 it was suggested that Boer prisoners be interned on the Chatham Islands, the editor of the Ashburton Guardian suggested that Barclay and William Hutchison should be placed on the islands as well, so pro-Boers and traitors would get their just desserts. Despite the strength of their convictions, for the duration of the war, individuals like Waddell, Berwick, Bain and Gray, who questioned New Zealand's involvement in the, in the conflict, remained an ineffectual minority. Lacking unity and vastly outnumbered by supporters of British actions in South Africa, dissenters' views were often either openly ridiculed or dismissed. In this environment, the loyalty of those who publicly opposed the war was questioned, and with few exceptions, they were vilified and risked the threat of physical violence. Fractured, socially ostracised, and with their message often interpreted by a largely hostile press, dissenters never coalesced into a unified, effective anti-war movement, and never presented a serious threat to New Zealand's continued involvement in the distant conflict. Nonetheless, their bravery and resolve provided the precedent for the anti-war movements that followed in their wake. Although they failed to end New Zealand's participation in the conflict, or even present a real challenge to it, they remained true to their beliefs and generated public debate. As such, they have earned a well-deserved place in New Zealand's history. Thank you.